Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, Philip Morn talks to Ali Smith, the winner of the Goldsmiths Prize. I talk to Jason Cowley about what's happening with Ed Miliband. And Ian Stedman and I discuss how to land a probe on a comet that's travelling extremely fast. But first up, Phil shares a discussion between me and Jason about the woes and pitfalls of being Labour leader. So Helen, how did we get to this point? What What's happened to Ed Miliband? Well, I think the thing that we've really learned from what happened with last week's issue and the fallout from that is that there were lots of people who were just waiting for their moment. Um, obviously, the only way that a story like this can have resonance is if it, if it tunes into something that people are already feeling. And I think that's clearly the case, is that there were lots of people who had been, been briefing against Ed Miliband they then went and briefed other papers about them. We had this kind of, I think, slightly wild observer splash about 20 shadow ministers uh, mm-hmm. on the brink. So I think there was there was a certain amount of exaggeration as the story rolled on, but it was one that had legs because these questions aren't new about Ed Miliband. A, a lot of people always felt that, you know, with the conversation that I had with Raf and George many times last year, that there were discontented, grumbling Labour backbenchers. And while there was a poll lead, the, the lid was kept on that. Um, Raf had a great metaphor about this being like the great escape, and they dug their escape tunnel, but unfortunately it's come up 20 feet short. And that's kind of how the Labour Party feels about its poll ratings now. There's more and more that are putting them neck and neck with the Tories. Sometimes, occasionally, there was a poll yesterday that actually put the Tories ahead. And under those circumstances, any kind of idea of just grimly hanging on and hoping for the scrappy 1-0 win is out of the question. And that's mm. that's why the story has such resonance. And he seems to have entered the war room, doesn't he? I mean, he was on Newsnight last night. Did you catch him and what did you think of his performance? I didn't see him on Newsnight. I did see him on the news at um, 10. And, and I think the problem I think that's is... that's what I mean. <laughs> OK, well, the, the problem with that, I think, is that it's very difficult because you are, he is obviously now in a defensive position, but you have to not look defensive. And um, I think this is something that you get from successful politicians is often just an, an aura of confidence and of, of, of happiness. And I think that steadiness, for example, is something that comes up and again. You know, David Cameron isn't a politician that I particularly violently rate and respect, but what his party likes about him is his is almost the thing that I dislike about him, which is the kind of sense of complacency, that steadiness of, of course I'm in charge, I'm the kind of person who would always be in charge. And he radiates kind of that sort of, that sense of almost entitlement. Mm-hmm. And that's very difficult because Edmund Mann doesn't, have that he never seems particularly comfortable about being in charge it almost feels like i think the, we use this idea of manifest destiny that he's kind of he's he feels that he has to but by god he's not going to enjoy it and i think that's a real problem <laughs> and if i could turn to you jason i mean what what does ed do to get himself out of this out of this hole 
He's in a deep hole, Phil. I say in the leader this week that he's been deeply wounded, but not fatally. Mm. Um, Helen's right that there was a lot of chatter and discontent about his performance over a long, over a long period. But it intensified about 10 days ago when you got those polls in Scotland which showed the SNP way ahead of Labour for, for the Westminster Parliament, not, not for Hollywood, as well as his own appalling approval rating, which mm. is now below Nick Clegg's. And we sent our political ed- editor, George Eaton, out to report and talk to some very senior sources in the party, and they were in cl- they're close to despair. So I thought it was time for someone to say something, mm. which is why I wrote... Um, my editor's note last week, which got widely picked up and commented upon and has been described as brutal or savage. I don't think it was that. I think it was an honest and candid assessment of a a leader who is struggling and his performance has been poor. I feel, what does he do now, you ask me? Well, what I understand the party's going to do is try and present a united front. There's no stamina to remove him. There's no obvious successor. There's no one there waiting and willing to strike. Alan Johnson doesn't want the highest office. His brother David is over the water in New York in exile. They can't bring him back. They attempted to do and crash him into a, a, a safe seat. There would be the most awful civil war with the unions mobilising, which would lose Labour the election. So that won't happen. Andy Burnham, Yvette Cooper and others are playing a longer game. So what I understand is going to happen is that some very senior shadow cabinet members will form a team around Ed Miliband. So it's less about him as the leader and more about a team of talents. How does... Oh, God, no, I, I, what I was going to say is the other thing that this, this whole crisis brings up is something that Jason references in his interview in this week's magazine with Nigel Farage. So the long analysis about UKIP has been from Matthew Goodwin and Robert Ford that it's not about left versus right. It's about the left behind. It's about who are the winners and losers of globalisation. And that's the thing that you're really beginning to see with, with Labour is that UKIP are picking up support in those northern heartland seats from people who might very well have been traditionally Labour. They have a, I think... Um, Raph used to describe it as a cultural inoculation against voting Tory. They just simply would never consider voting Tory. But they feel that UKIP speaks to them. They are fundamentally quite socially conservative often um, and feel that that their big concerns are things like jobs and and housing and that Labour for them feels too metropolitan. And I think that's something that... um, I mean, I know, Jason, you brought this up in your interview with Nigel Farage. He weirdly doesn't consider himself right-wing, despite this is a party that until recently had a kind of flat tax proposal and stuff like that. Yeah, that that might be um, rhetorical positioning. I mean, UKIP are, in many ways, a hard-right party. Just look at the people who have gathered around Nigel Farage and their their backgrounds, people like Neil Hamilton, the disgraced Tory, Mm. uh, and others. But Farage genuinely sees himself as a radical, and I suppose he is. But what, what he said to me, which is very interesting, about he thought, the Labour vote was more tribal than the Conservative vote. But he's finding that it's not. That He uses a phrase that they no longer recognise the Labour tribe. In other words, metropolitan Hampstead intellectuals such as Ed Miliband, they're like aliens when they go, they go to the north of England or, or the, the isolated east coast of England or to the co- depressed coastal constituencies of Essex. I mean, they don't understand this man. I noticed yesterday that Miliband went to Harlow, which is my old hometown in Essex, and I made a little joke about him last week that he doesn't understand Essex man and lower middle class or working class material aspiration, um, not intellectual aspiration, material aspiration, desire to buy a, a home, a car, have a decent holiday, and that kind of defines a lot of what Essex man and woman is about. And I'm not sure Ed Miliband 
quite understands that. And it was, I thought it was significant that he went out there and tried to address that. But Farage said to me when I spent some time with him, his first thing he said to me is, I'm coming for the Labour vote. And he certainly is. So he's eating into the Labour vote. He's eating into the Conservative vote. And he's positioning himself as this populist insurgent. And being with him, Helen, I thought it was very interesting what you say about optimism. He is an optimistic figure. You may disagree profoundly with what he has to say, but I found him very engaging. And I got something of what I got when I spent some time with Alex Salmon from Farage. They're similar personalities in many ways. They enjoy the game of politics. They don't mind people having a go at them. They have strong views. They're prepared to take on their enemies. They're humorous. They use sarcasm. All of these things that Ed Miliband, for whatever reason, seems incapable of using. Which is funny, particularly because Farage's message is is profoundly pessimistic. It's you know people Eastern European immigration has depressed wages. You know there is no, there are no um, opportunities for people born in Britain to do in the same way they could when he was growing up. And yet delivered with this kind of brio, I suppose, and with the promise of an extremely simple solution. I mean he's got one very simple solution to every problem that there is, which is leave the EU. And then you can see why populism is alluring in that sense. I think the other thing that's interesting is that, to come back to that London problem, London is totally resistant to UKIP. London, mm. although it's got the highest rate of immigration in the country, it is, it, 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 you know, people are not worried about immigration in London in, in the same way that they are even 50 miles outside. I think this is a point that Farage makes. And I do think that the next election is going to be very defined by that London versus the rest of the country narrative, which is a huge problem for, for journalists as well, because as Farage says to you, Jason, you know, the trouble is that all the commentators writing these thoughtful pieces about Ed Miliband, largely they also have more in common with him than they do with a discontented voter in Harlow that, or Hull. Yeah, that, that's right. And Farage talks about um, London as if it's, an, it's another world. You, you leave London and you, you discover a, another country. It's um, he had. You're right that he he has a a kind of gloomy analysis of what's wrong with Britain, but he does have an a, an optimistic solution. It's a very banal and simple solution. We've got to get back control of our country, mm. as, he, as he keeps saying, and he says it with such sort of jauntiness and enthusiasm that people believe that he has um, some of the solutions to our problems. My name is Philip Moore and I am joined by Ali Smith, the second recipient of the Goldsmiths Prize. We are we are backstage or we're in a very small little nice room at Foyle's Bookshop on Charing Cross Road. Um, and, and Ali has just been uh, awarded the prize after having been nominated twice, shortlisted twice. How do you feel about winning the Goldsmiths Prize? Oh, I'm, I'm a little in shock. Um, I really, really didn't think uh, on, on this shortlist that this would happen and I'm really amazed and pleased and delighted because there's something about this particular prize which as soon as it, you know you formed the very idea of this prize it goes it just went to my heart it's for the kind of writing that is natural to me and the kind of books that I most like reading um, and so to, to be sitting in front of this beautiful uh, trophy which has been made by the Goldsmiths design students um, and it's really beautiful it's got it's got the Tristram Shandy swirl on it and um, I can't think of a more celebratory uh, uh, you know, uh, way to look at the, the novel, really. Well, and so your you know your your novel, How mm. to Be Both, is so much about um, shape and craft. You mm. know, it's often so. The one conversational point that people keep bringing up to me when I mention the novel, they say, "In which order do you do you read it?" Yeah. Because, and I should explain to the listeners that the book 
is in is in two halves, two parts, and you don't know uh, which which order you're going to receive them in. Um, this is um, I don't know. Was that part of the plan from the from the very beginning? It was from the very start of the right. the conception of the novel. I wanted to make something that was based on a structure which was, uh, if you like, pivotal, um, and it's about pivotal structure all the way through. It's about the the, the, the pivotal nature of structural um, structure. Um, the um, the idea was the that if you look at a painting on a wall, it's a fresco, so it's actually part of the wall. Um, you see something; it's been there for five hundred years. It's just as fresh because that's why frescoes are called frescoes, as the day they were paint it was painted. Um, if you take that fresco off the wall, which now they have all sorts of ways of doing, you find something underneath which um, has been there all along, but we haven't seen. We've, just, you know, we've been looking at it for 500 years, but we haven't been able to see it. Um, and I wanted, I just thought this was a really good uh, notion for narrative, which is the, the centre of all narratives. There's... All, you know, all the, I mean, all the narratives that I really love. There is something which is not being said, something which the, the reader has to bring to the story. The person who comes to the novel has to bring to the story, or will or will find by by the articulation of the novel there'll be something which the novel brings along with it. Seemed to me a very good way to talk about um, both consequence uh, and sequence in the novel. Um, if you had a way that you could shift time quite so uh, radically, if that was possible, I wasn't sure if it was possible. Um, and also to talk about the way that time, you know, is. Is relative and the, you know the, the it's dimensional and it was, and then I began to be interested in whether or not you could make that a, a dimension of the novel there could be something actually plastic in that dimension actually physical in the dimension of the structure of the novel so it, uh, that's what that's where I started with the hope that if you put two things together uh, one on top of the other and then you shifted the order because maybe one came first rather than the other um, you something new would, op- would open in the notion of the novel and, and, and you know, almost securing uh, sort of double double readings from all of your readers because I think mm. uh, most people I haven't spoken to they've read it in both orders to see what uh, clicks and what sparks and what. Did they really sense. do that? That's exciting yeah, to yeah, me. No, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's um, nice. Yeah, because that's a that's a that's a really I actually think the thing about novels and their lives, books and their lives, particularly novels, because novels are about time and they're about time in our lives and they're about the social, deeply about the social ethic. Um, but there's something about as we go through our lives, uh, communally with everybody else. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a really, a, you know, a, a book that is, is really well made will resonate really differently at different times. So, in our own lives, we will come up against our own readings, and these books will seem different at different mm. times. So, the notion that a book is immediately different mm. just was a very good shadow of the very, you know, the, of, of the of the structure again. I think it makes the reader so important in the whole process it's as very well. Very important. Um, yeah. We should say a little bit about what these two sort of halves entail and the very the very basic information for those who have not yet read um, the novel. One half is about a teenager in Cambridge in 2014 who has recently lost or in half of it is kind of about Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. To lose her mother and the difference between the generations. Um, and, you know, the, the other half is about a painter, fresco painter, um, um, called Francesco or Francesco, Francesco, Francesco Del Cosa, mm. indeed. Mm. And there's an interesting story there, I believe. You were you were grabbed by an image yes. painted by 
Yeah, I knew I wanted to write about frescoes, so I was looking at all the very famous frescoes, and then by chance I opened the magazine and saw a fresco which was unlike anything else, precisely because it was secular, number one, because it was a picture of a man who was wearing rags, looked incredibly rich, even though he was the most poor person you could imagine, he looked like the richest person ever, uh, he was so powerful and, and beautiful, um, and I just thought, what is that, I want to go and see it, mm. and we went to see these frescoes in Ferrara, and I discovered a, uh, um, a, a fresco uh, maker that I had never heard of. I would never have heard of if I hadn't chanced on it because he's so little known. Uh, there are only about 16 works. And the story of this man's life is that his life disappeared. You know, he's painted his works, had a little name for himself. It was, only, it was, a, it was a name. Then when he died, the name disappeared um, uh, because Vasari, who, who collected our um, histories of the painters, got his name wrong. I called him Lorenzo Costa. He said it was Lorenzo Costa. And um, so Da Costa completely, you know, he vanishes for 400 years until uh, Adolfo Venturi goes into the, uh, the stacks in Modena and finds in the archive a letter from Da Costa asking for more money yep. for some frescoes he's done in Ferrara. Decent uh, pay which for just, decent pay <laughs> just seems to me to be the most, I mean, you know, the thing, he's lasted by his pictures and his name is lasted by his asking for money. Yes. Yeah. And the very little we know about this painter, we know almost nothing, has been expanded beautifully by a, a, an art critic, a, 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 a furiously super, superb art critic called Roberto Longhi, a, a, um, an Italian art critic of the, of the first half of the 20th century, who went round re-attributing pictures of Del Cossi's that had been, we just hadn't known they were his. So there are 15 or 16 works that we now know belong to this painter. One of the things I think was really uh, striking in the book, I mean, art and um, in, in all kinds of ways, are features right the way through. But you do talk about a number of uh, paintings because there is a Del Cossa in the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah. Mm. No, in, yeah, National just in the National Gallery, yeah, National in, the, Gallery. in the Sainsbury Building. Yeah. And um, I just wondered, you know, how, that process of writing about a painting, these are different forms, different mediums. And did you just, do you look at this? painting once and then is it your memories of it that you're writing about or do you have these things tacked up above the computer or you know or the notebook you No, I'm really most excited by the, the points at which the arts cross into each other. That was why I was interested in seeing whether or not a structure which was a physical painting structure would be able to and also a physical wall structure would, would enter the novel form whether the novel form could again you know touch back on this, this, other, um, this other format in the world. As we move through life uh, we apprehend sensually all the time. One of the, one of the ways in which um, the novel works, uh, least expectedly, is sensually. So if we go to the senses, uh, we will immediately be waking that thing which is most human in all of us. All we have to do is name a colour. You know, I'm thinking, now I'm thinking of all this Wallace Stevens poems where he says, you know, the evenings are haunted by white light gowns, but you know, not by red and green and blue. And you know, as soon as he, he mentions the colours, something sparks in the brain, and, you know, even the word sparks the colour in the brain. So it was about the points at which uh, our senses, uh, you know, kind of cross that border that we think is between the eyes, but it wasn't at all. Mm, yeah. Which reminds me entirely of something I remember you saying last year at the, the Goldsmiths Prize reading, which was uh, your kind of first exhibition, uh, was that this was such a really mm. sexy reading. It was. And you, I think, alive because... I mean, is it possible not to be uh, stimulated, perhaps not in a better word, by the language that yeah, was, was coming it out was. of all of these it was, readings? The language is, uh, this is one of the, inter the really interesting things about this prize, which is that at every point it's about the workings of language, you know, and, and the, the things which language does, which we do not expect language to do in what we take for granted as the novel. Um, it's, you just have to look at the shortlist for this prize, and, and every single one of these books is burning with life. You know? 
Mm. As a final question, mm. um, at the uh, at the uh, reading you gave two weeks ago, you talked about you said that the novel is a revolutionary force. Mm. I just wonder if you could uh, explain what you mean by that. Oh God, explain it. I think it's just a fact. The novel is about revolution. It's always been about uh, marking and. Uh, opening and making visible the changes which are happening around us right now. That's why I said it was a social form. I think it can't help but be a social form because it's a communal human uh, story which is being told in the novel, even when you try and tell it individually. The, the, the notion of sequence and consequence simply adds to something which is both moral and social uh, in the form. The, the, well, those things, I think, are grafted onto the novel form. It can't get away from them, no matter what we do with it. Um, and I think in that way... When we mark change in the novel, we mark change and we ask for change and we question the, the, sh the shapes of structures which form us, make us, and in which we live. Um, and that, that seems to me the novel is one of the... It's, you know, it, it goes about this in a way that people don't expect, but when we look at the ways in which the novel is asking those questions, it's, I think it's crucially important to us as human beings, uh, as a form, commonly, socially, to look at what the novel says. Ali Smith, congratulations. Thanks very much. Thanks. This week we landed a probe on a comet that was moving extremely fast. The probe was moving extremely fast. Um, it was a very tense uh, time for everybody involved. We sat in the office and watched it and tried to divine from people's facial expressions whether or not things were going well. I'm joined by Ian Stebman, our science writer, to explain everything. So start yes. off, first of all, when did, they, when did they launch the lander? This is, well, the lander's called Philae. Filet, I apologise for anyone who... Um, it's named after the island in the Nile where the Rosetta Stone was found. The Rosetta probe was what carried Filet to the, the comet. The comet is called, and I also apologise to any Russian-speaking listeners, 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. I'm not going to say that again, I'm just going to say 67P. Um, a sort of four kilometre across rock which uh, has an orbit... It goes around the sun sort of once every six years and... Well, back in the 80s, the European Space Agency thought it would be a great idea to try and land something on the comet. In the 90s, they got the plan confirmed. By 2000, they uh, had the rocket ready, but then there was bad weather, so they had to wait another four years and choose a different comet to go to. And then they launched in 2004, and since 2004, Rosetta has gone round the sun and back to the Earth three times and once to Mars to get gravity assists to change its trajectory enough so that it would eventually change every time it goes round and kind of fall into the same orbit around the sun as 67P, the comet. And then earlier this year, uh, they woke up the probe and it kind of caught up with it. And then it's now gone into orbit around the comet. And then yesterday they detached Philae, which is kind of like a washing machine sized lander with three legs. You can imagine that. Um, it doesn't have any thrusters or anything, so they basically just waited for this... Uh, I mean, already orbiting something around a comet is absolutely astonishing. Uh, but then they managed to just, like, d detach it at the right point, like throwing a baseball, and it just took about seven hours to just drift down to the surface. Um, and then, yeah, we watched in the office, there's all these ESA uh, mission controllers were, were kind of... It's, it's great watching those live streams, because there's about a half-hour uh, time for the information to go from Earth to the comet so you have half an hour where we know it should have landed by now um hopefully it hasn't hit and bounced off into space and all you can tell is all you can see is these facial expressions of um sort of a bunch of guys in hoodies kind of shaking their heads or smiling or whatever in the mission control room and, and you try and figure out from that 
whether it landed or not. And it turned out it did. We have landed something on a comet. And it's really difficult. I mean, even on, to land something on a planet is oh, the hard. easiest thing. I yeah. mean, we were talking about Beagle, which was the Mars lander. Yeah, that one just went straight down and like hit and just exploded, basically. Um, yeah, Curiosity was really, really hard. The Curiosity rover to land on Mars, because Mars's atmosphere is 1% of the thickness of the density of the Earth's. So you can't do um, aerobraking, which is like, you know, parachute. Um, you've got to kind of come in... Not at a shallow angle, so you bounce off Mars, or too steep an angle because you then just fall straight into the the ground. Um, what they had to do was this kind of complicated thing, which came through the atmosphere, and then some rockets fired, detached a second bit, which uh, inflated like a big beach ball with the probe inside it, and then it bounced on the ground, and then that deflated and let it out. Um, but you can't even do that because you haven't got one percent of that. You've got um, a comet uh, the size of sixty-seven p has very low gravity uh, escape velocity of about a meter per second um which is is kind of if you walk very fast on the surface you will go flying off into space so uh i like yeah. that as an image I mean, <laughs> not something necessarily i would recommend anybody try yeah. what's the hope of what they will find out from this landing the origins of life on earth it's like a really <laughs> crucial mission this is what's also really cool about it is um we we're pretty sure that when uh, the solar system formed most of the water on the early Earth came from comets. It wasn't part of the Earth when it first cooled into a big ball. Um, and for the first few sort of million, 100 million years, a series of comets hit the Earth um, and gave us oceans and things like that. Um, and so to prove that, we need to know what kind of stuff is in comets today. Because the comets that are around today are the same comets that are around when the solar system formed. They're the building blocks left over from the formation of the solar system. Um, so we're looking for minerals uh water we want to find out exactly how uh dirty a snowball comets are because we always thought that asteroids are rocks and comets are sort of snowballs but what uh, we we've kind of over the last 10 years realized is that there's a kind of blurry line between the two um comets are actually pretty dusty as well if you see the amazing photos that rosetta and um actually just before we started recording this the file landers twitter feed tweeted the first picture from the surface of a comet and it's just it looks like rocks but it's kind of like icy rocks i guess um so it's going to sit in there for a while it's going to scoop up some stuff it's got some instruments on board it's going to analyze the the chemical makeups um i, I can't it hasn't got a particularly long life the probe but the rosetta thing is still uh, the rosetta probe is still in orbit and that's going to be there for at least another 18 months as it goes towards the sun and the comet's tail starts to form and that's you know it heats up uh, water starts evaporating and, and rocks explode and things like that. Uh, yeah. Um, Pretty cool. And so Rosetta is going to fly through that and try and analyze some of it. But eventually, like, so much stuff is going to get on its solar panels that it's going to uh, shut down or it's going to get hit by a big rock. And, and have you been following any of the, the kind of grumpy comment about why are we sending probes off into space when, <laughs> you know, bad things are happening on Earth? Um, I don't know if there was... Uh, George Monroe yeah. wrote a yeah, I don't, did he, exactly. I can't actually remember if he cited because that was about Virgin Galactic, I think, rather than um, Philae, mm. but Philae and Rosetta. But um, I always just think that's such, such a dumb argument. It's like really, really naive. the 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 thing about space exploration is, I mean, his argument was all about anti-colonization like we haven't even fixed we're, we're ruining the climate on this planet so let's just go and find a new one to ruin mm. instead instead of addressing our fundamental problems like that that's all good and stuff but um exploring space a is just fundamentally awesome 
B reveals a huge amount of exciting stuff about just science. Like there's so many important questions we can answer using these kind of missions. Um, and C there's spin-off technology you get from it. Like Virgin Galactic, yeah, is, is like a rich person's plaything. It's going to be a, a, a space plane that doesn't really take you into space. It basically takes you to the edge of space mm. just about, um, like you need a spacesuit to live there, but it's going to give you six minutes of weightlessness or whatever. Um, but the thing that's actually cool about that is it could lead to, uh, better jet planes which can take you from london to sydney in an hour for instance then that's quite cool um because they'd be able to go where the atmosphere is so thin that there'd be almost yeah, no it, it, resistance basically the same way an icbm works <laughs> it's like it goes out of the atmosphere and falls back down again um and that's the kind of and there are so many things that came out of the the original space race that i mean there's the minor things like velcro and teflon and stuff but um all kinds of interesting things about understanding like the iss being a closed environment has given us so much knowledge and understanding of how closed biosystems work in mm. terms of recycling resources. Um, writing that off is just silly. That was very nice. That was very optimistic. <laughs> uh, your BBC One science documentary can be only mere moments away. <laughs> and, um, on which I'll say thank you very much. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn. Results still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic out of botulinum toxin A is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.